Bada bing! Welcome to Movie Maker. My name is Tim Malloy, and today my guest is Alan Taylor, director of the fantastic, just blissfully fantastic new film, Many Saints of Newark. I was very scared going into this movie that it wouldn't live up to The Sopranos. It totally does, while telling a totally different story. Uh, just some detail about the circumstances of this interview. I spoke to Alan Taylor around August 6th after seeing a very early screening of the film. There was a press embargo where we weren't supposed to say anything about it to anyone. Um, I observed that. I think the only person who didn't was a reporter for Bloomberg who let leak a little early how good he thought the film was. So we were in kind of an interesting situation where Alan Taylor was the first person I was able to talk about the movie with, the director of the movie, and I was one of the first people who'd seen the film who could give him any feedback. So I think we were sort of um, relieved to be able to talk openly about this film, and I made no secret in talking about how good I thought it was, because I really did. Uh, the Many Saints of Newark is out on HBO Max today and in theaters. I know this isn't going to really uh, increase the numbers for this podcast, but I'm going to ask you to please not listen to this unless you've seen the movie, because we're going to spoil a lot of things. We're also going to spoil some things that happen on The Sopranos. So, the summary I'm about to give you is for people who are uh, want a reminder of what they've already seen or who don't care about spoilers. Many Saints of Newark stars Alessandro Nivola as Dickie Moltisanti, father of Sopranos character Christopher Moltisanti, played for six seasons by the fantastic Michael Imperioli. By the way, I highly recommend the podcast that he co-hosts, Talking Sopranos. We also meet Dickie Moltisanti's dad, Hollywood Dick Moltisanti, who is played by Ray Liotta, who somewhat famously turned down the role of Ralphie on The Sopranos that went to Joey Pantaleon. So those are just a few of the many saints that we meet on The Many Saints of Newark. Many Saints, of course, is the English translation of Moltisanti. Aha! Another major character is Harold McRae, played by a magnetic Leslie Odom Jr. And growing up amidst all of these characters is a young Tony Soprano, played by Michael Gandolfini, son of James Gandolfini, who of course, ugh, not, I have no words for the way he played Tony Soprano. Maybe the greatest character <laughs> on TV, maybe just the greatest character. And now, here's director Alan Taylor, of the many saints of Newark. Once again, there are a lot of spoilers coming up. You are warned. I love this movie. I thought you did an amazing job of honoring the show and also making something that stands on its own. I mean, that's, that's exactly <laughs> the, the reaction I, love, I would love to get, so thank you. Um, you know that was what kept me awake at night on the way in and, and through it was you know are we are we getting there like you what you just described so how much did you try to make a movie for people who might have never seen the sopranos just know it was good and people who are obsessed with every detail yeah i think it was really much you know very much a conscious concern probably more from warner brothers than anybody else of you know of um is this going to work for the fans and is this going to work beyond the fans um i think i mostly approached it um as someone sort of who was kind of immersed in the show um and mostly focusing on making sure we had that continuity sort of from the world of the show with the hope 
and based on the, you know, the kind of script that David wrote, where it was very much its own universe with its own, you know, main character that was fully introduced and defined uh, within uh, that story, but that, that I thought it could work as a standalone just because of the nature of the story he created. Um, so I, I think I was focused on more the issue of um, artistically and, and, and creatively carrying the show into, onto the big screen and also the usual, you know, fan paranoia that I've learned to internalize, uh, not <laughs> wanting to get it right for those who, who, um, who really knew or loved the show. It's funny. I've only seen it once with an audience, and the one comment I heard from somebody who didn't. Most people said that something similar to what you said that they, even if they weren't Sopranos fans, they really it worked for them. Was not knowing who Christopher Maltesanti was. Um, you know, is, is a different experience. If, if you come in knowing him and his backstory and his relationship to Tony, I think the way we begin the movie has one of feelings and if you don't know that then you're you know you're somewhere else if you know who he is and you've watched the show it is a pardon my language it is a fucking jaw dropper it's the last voice <laughs> I can hear. it's so good <laughs> i mean it was, it was so funny because we you know we uh, david had tried a, a few other beginnings in his in his mind and um uh and then he found that one and i think uh michael imperioli was probably as surprised as anybody to think that he would be you know coming back <clears throat> Well, him and Steve Sherpa have kind of kept the kept the flame alive with the podcast too. So he feels like a great connector. Yeah, in fact, I, I uh, should make a product placement because uh, I have these headphones thanks to his pod thanks to his podcast. If you go on his podcast, uh, you get free headphones. <laughs> oh, a pair of those headphones that you get if you submit yeah, the question yeah. of the day. <laughs> yeah, right. Very nice. Um, so your first episode of The Sopranos ever, I believe, was Pac Soprano um, episode wow. six. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? How old were you? Where were you in your career? What, what really, was really? How did it change? It, it was really uh, early in my career. I, you know, it was not that long out of film school um, at NYU, and I guess by that point I'd done like a TV show and um, a movie, a feature, and I came out of film school and my heroes were Scorsese and Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee and, and all I thought about was movies and um and Jane Campion um but I and TV was sort of uh you know we all looked down on television um and then they sent me the pilot for Sopranos and I couldn't believe it it was you know the imagery was cinematic the coverage was cinematic the intelligence, the funny, the humor, the, the sense of absurd. Anyway, all the stuff we love about it hit me. And so I said, yes, I wanted to do it. And so I met David Chase and I think he had seen my one feature. I don't know what he thought about it, but it, but it took, it, Palookaville, but it, it took place in New Jersey. So I think that probably, you know, reassured him or something. So I, I got to go in and do one episode sort of halfway through for a season. And you did the show that you did was Homicide Life on the Street? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Which was, you know, another shocker because I had just come out of film school literally and got a call from Barry Levinson's office and Tom Fontana's office asking if I wanted to direct this. And I, you know, I'd done nothing. I'd made a, movie, a short about my girlfriend <laughs> in film school. And, uh, and I think their mandate at the time was to try and break the rules of television. So they had the brilliant idea of hiring people who'd never even learned the rules of television. Um, uh, and so that was my first you know, job job. It was so strange to get out and trucks as far as I can see and Teamsters and all that stuff was, was wild. Oh my God. But it led, it led, to, it led to a long relationship because I was in Homicide for a while with uh, Tom Fontana. So what was your impression of that first episode when you were on the set? What was it like working with David Chase, who I understand um, is very opinionated and doesn't really suffer fools? 
just what was that like? Um, it's funny. Yeah, he's he's got a very strong sense of what was right for the show, and he can be, um, you know, if you if you get it wrong, it can be grim. Um, the funny thing was uh, he was also really busy. I mean, because he he was show running the whole thing for the first time, so he couldn't really be on set very much. So I think part of his need to, to uh to be you know sort of fierce about it was because there was so much that he couldn't quite micromanage that he couldn't be you know that he had to sort of turn over to other people like you know a guy just out of film school so at the time there was this uh and i was so new to it i didn't know it was exceptional but he would do these tone meetings you know in television it's very common to have a tone meeting where you read this you go through the script together and the producer writers tend to tell the directors what they have in mind and so everybody's on the same page um, but David does it completely differently where he makes, you've got like 10 people, 15 people around a table and he has the director talk through the whole script and explain the whole thing, which is just, you know, it's like a graduate seminar. Uh, um, and I remember going into my first episode and he explained that that's what we were going to do in the meeting. And I said, oh, I've never heard of that before. And he said, oh, would you like some time to prepare for that? And I said, yes. He said, like an hour. And I said, well, like a day. <laughs> so we shut, no, we almost shut the meeting down and began again. But um, instead he said, okay, well, just this once I'll do it. So then he ran the meeting. But every, every episode after that, I realized you had to do your homework ahead of that meeting and go in. Um, and, and what happened was that that's where you sort of faced the wrath of uh of David Chase or the, or the or the support of David Chase, and if you got to that meeting, okay, then you were sort of okay for the episode. It was um, Tim Van Patten, another mainstay director, called those meetings uh, "Defend Your Life." Was the, was, was the <laughs> um, yeah, this film. So, I mean, yeah. This... Just as, as a result, as a result, the, the actual experience of shooting was, you know, not too uh, stressful, and there was there was not, you know, he would come by and visit and sort of be. Um, you know, say hello and then leave. It wasn't really too controlly on the set. So as distinct as the feel and the tone of the show is, the movie's different. It's not the same tone. It's not, there's a lot of the same humor, but it's not the same look. It's obviously a different time. How did you make it your own? Well, it's funny, and that, that's a sensitive topic because I'd love to um, talk more about where you felt it was similar, where you felt it was different, because I think going into it, my first concern was, like I said, how to show maintain the continuity but then there was you know one of the major challenges was um sort of the defining brilliance of the show was that it was contemporary and that it was on a small screen and that was the david's brilliant idea take the classic gangster movie and you know do that so then by doing our movie we're putting it back up on the big screen and we're going back into period so in fact you're sort of yanking away two of the defining traits of the show i mean the the world that ours takes place in the gangsters are wearing much nicer suits. The women are, you know, are dressing nicely. It's the kind of golden age that Tony later in life looked back to. Um, so you lose, you lose some of the, the charm of uh, the track suits and the sort of slightly Jersey tacky um, aesthetic that, that was a fun part of the show. Um, although, you know, there's some of that Polly will always dress like Polly. So he's got, you know, <laughs> he's got uh, leisure suits to, to go to and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I think lately it's formal. No one's wearing tracksuits. Um, you know, it's Frank yeah, Sinatra at Newark. Yeah, it, yes, it's very, very self-consciously rat tacky. They, they, they love that about themselves, and they really, they, they perform that for themselves. And Dickie was particularly a, a very elegant character with, you know, nice suits and um, Ray Liotta's character getting manicures. Uh, it was, you know, that period. So that was one difference. And then being on the big screen, you know. You, 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 I adjusted the imagery somewhat. So, you know, you, there, you want a bit more scale, you want and depth. Um, 
but I, I did try to maintain sort of the energy of the show. As you said, the humor, um, some sense of the absurd. There's a couple of dreamy moments in the movie that, I, that you know, were some of my favorite moments in the show was when things get a little bit surreal. Um, and then there's also this, uh, just in terms of the way that we compose frames and the way we move the camera was an attempt to be in the same vocabulary as the, as the movie. Um, nothing too ornate and fancy, nothing too showy, but sort of a kind of, <clears throat> you know, power behind things. So that you sort of drive in and, and frame forcefully. That, we tried to sort of carry that over, but, uh, and also I, I, the look of the show did change over time. I know, I remember it was more stylized in the first season, I think, than it was later on. I looked back at an old episode recently and was really struck by, uh, it was kind of, it was, it was more stylized. It was, it was, I think it was the influence of one DP named Alex Zakharov, who was, uh, loved, he had a wonderful training with wide lenses and stuff that really gave it a kind of punch in the first couple of seasons. Yeah. So the show itself evolved. And so this was our attempt to carry what I thought were the key qualities on the big screen. Yeah. It, it's a good point that it's before things turned a little tacky. Um, and I mean, I was alive. I was watching it living in New Jersey in the late 90s when it was on. So like I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. was part of it. I was right there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you were probably dressed. You were probably dressing differently than the, I'm assuming you weren't. Some of those, some of those AJ outfits, I I felt a bit, <laughs> I didn't feel good about it. Um, <laughs> so you got to actually restage some scenes that take place in the Down Neck episode, the episode after the first one you shot. Um, what were the conversations like about that? About revisiting something that had already been on the show and making it fresh. Um. I saw them. I made sure to watch them, but there was we were we released ourselves from any sense of uh, necessary continuity with them. Um, uh, and it's it's you know on the one hand we had a lot more money than they had back then to go to period. Um, so you know we could go to a real amusement park and actually you know afford to just shoot it. Um, <laughs> and you know I was so lucky to have uh, you know, people like Corey Stoll and John Barenthal you know stepping into those roles uh so I, you know i i knew that certain stories had been told um and certain stories had been portrayed in the show but we didn't really feel too beholden to them we um we we uh in fact i i think there were some things that actually differed in terms of the storytelling and i think david sometimes thought that well this is all memory you know who knows who got it right and um you know for example i think in the show at some point christopher refers to his dad as being like a an addict and a junkie and stuff and and that's not our take on Dickie in the movie. So I think we feel that that was Chris, who is not the most reliable narrator in the world, um, projecting stuff onto the memory of his dad rather than, you know, an accurate memory. So anyway, we, there was, I felt like we had some latitude between what we saw in the show and what we portrayed. Well, and he might see Johnny Boy as John Bernthal. I mean, he might see him more as that and less as like the kind of, you know, the guy who played him in the show, who was a little bit more, maybe still a handsome guy, but maybe not, not John Bernthal. Not yeah, like a, yeah, no, no one's like John Bernthal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe just the, the one guy, the one guy is like John Bernthal. <clears throat> um, how worried were you going in about Michael Gandolfini? Um, just to have him step into that huge role and you don't know if it's going to work and people are going to be mad at yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it was, it was sort of the, one of the riskiest things in a way that we did, but it was also uh, fun, funnily uh, the thing I probably did with the most confidence. Um, because of how it happened, we were, you know, we were auditioning various uh, good young actors for that role. 
with the idea of Michael as a possibility for a while, and then we decided to make to 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 try it. And so what that meant was that you know we we didn't just take a, a complete leap of faith. We had Michael had to come in and read for for me and for David um, and do an audition, and he was fine in the audition. And it was it was two things. He was fine in the audition, and it was just so clear that he was carrying so much just um, in terms of the quality of it um, that that it was worth it. And then um, the night before we started shooting, the cast got together for the first time. We had a dinner and um, Michael was meeting everybody for the first time. And he stood up and said, I just want to thank everybody uh, for giving me a chance to say hello to my father again and goodbye again. And like everybody was like, oh, you know, not a just punched in the heart. And it was so clear that it was the right thing to do. It was so clear that it was, you know, karmically the right thing to do. And then by the time we started shooting, there was no, there was, it was the one of the few things I didn't fear or doubt the entire time because um, it seemed no matter what, so, so much the right way to go. And then it was, you know, icing on the cake, but he did a fantastic job and clearly did his homework. And, you know, he, he watched the entire series for the first time in his life um, and voluntarily got a chip tooth in, in, uh, um, to match his dad's. And, uh, and you know, by the time he came on set, he, 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 he was picking up the mannerisms and it was, you know, it was quite uncanny. It's really the, the bigger the, the, one of the bigger questions was, you know, is this going to be okay for Michael? Is this going to be too much to ask of a guy to? Uh, but um, he made it clear that he wanted to do it. And that 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 comment he made at the dinner made that clear. So um, yeah, it was it's good. I I really liked how innocent he played it. Like it could have had this incredible weight of, you know, all the all the memories and all the associations with his dad, and he's still able to play it like he is a twenty year old in nineteen, you know, the seventies. Um, yeah, it's funny. That was that, that that was a topic that we you know that came up a few times because sometimes it would lean into the gangster he was going to be or the tough guy we knew he was capable of being, and have and um, being mindful that he's not there yet uh, was part of the conversation. And also, Michael has this very natural sort of sweet quality to him that it was you know sort of trying to get him to channel that as much as you know what his father had portrayed, yeah. and being very very specific with those moments where you see the other side rising up. You know, there's a uh, a few a few moments when you glimpse that kind of in him. I didn't realize watching the show how important Dickie Maltesano was in his life. Um, do you think that's something that was added because of because this is told from a different perspective, told from Christopher's perspective? I um I think it's I think it's consistent with the show <clears throat> in that um I think in, in the show we knew that, that Dickie was a mentor <clears throat> to um to Tony. We knew in the show that his father was not much of a father, um, and to the extent that he was a father, he was sort of ground down by Lydia <laughs> by the end. Uh, and so uh, I think we're being consistent to the psychology and, and the backstory described in the show, but obviously we're featuring it uh, uh, up front more than ever in the movie. Um, but I don't think it's inaccurate to go back and say this was the guy that shaped him and might have shaped him differently. Um, assuming this is received well, and everyone, everyone whose reaction to I have heard has loved it. I mean, I loved okay. it, and the guy from Bloomberg loved it. Um, and I don't know. I, 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 I heard the guy from Bloomberg liked it. He was not supposed to say that out loud yet. It was too early for that. But uh, I mean, but, thank, thank, thank goodness it was positive. But uh, yeah, a little early. And I'm not allowed to talk about it with anybody else. But I think it's incredible, and I feel like it could open the door to more Sopranos stories. Is that something you talked about? 
it's funny. Barely, we barely talked about. Uh, David is so circumspect about this stuff, and you know, nobody wants to see a movie not written by David. I don't think no one wants to see. You know, uh, um, but there was a glimpse. You know, I think Warner Brothers would be interested. Um, I think Michael's intrigued by what it could be like. Uh, and there was one conversation I had with David where he said something, um, and I wasn't quite sure I heard him right. And I said, "Wait, are you talking about sequels?" And he said, "Maybe." And it was like as close as he, as close as he ever got to saying something positive. So I don't think it's impossible. Um, wow. And then the funny, the, the funny thing is that, you know, a lot of people sort of think of this as being, that this is going to be a movie that shows Tony the Young Gangster. And, you know, you've seen it and you know it's not that movie. It's, it's, it's prior to that. So certainly you can make a case that this is the sort of the setup movie for that yeah. movie. Um, um, but, uh, but I don't know, it'll all be up to David's inspiration and whether he gets you know, excited about it or not, I think. Well, this is also, it's called a Soprano story and you have to call it that, of course, but it's it's a Montesano story. I mean, the many saints, that is what Montesano means, right? Right, yeah. Um, it, uh, it means literally the many saints. I think it's a great title because um, then part of the fun for me directing it was to sort of identify the various saints. And if you look carefully, you'll see that most of our main characters have a halo at some point. Um, my favorite one is, uh, is Harold's when he's... Um, Sitting down with the mobsters at one point and, and sort of having a back and forth with Polly, and he's got the most beautiful halo behind him. He's doing that, and the um and the Black Street Gang at the time was called the many uh, was called the the Black Saints. Um, so they're, they're, the movie is full of saints. Um, uh, but beside the fact that yes, it was it's all in that family name. I love it, Christopher, at the beginning. You know, for those who have seen the movie, what he says, you know, I got a religious name for Christ's sake, <laughs> and still I'm fucked. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you branched out to, I, I think in The Sopranos, you know, it's a very white show because it's about Italians and it's in the 90s and everything else. And if they made the show now, people would probably say like, you know, the show needs some diversity. Um, but the, the film does have some diversity and it does branch out and tell the story of Black life in Newark. Um, and I thought the show, even in the 90s, was very sympathetic to the Black characters. Like there may not have been that many Black characters, but they tended to be right. And yeah, and, and I don't think he made them, you know, in, uh, into saints. But you know, I, I'm thinking in particular of the incredibly shitty treatment that Meadows' boyfriend got when he, he came over, and 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 Tony, your main character, just being just a complete racist yeah. <laughs> shit, uh, and uh, and even going so far, which I thought was a kind of even an added layer of, of psychology there. When I think Tony says at some point. You know, I don't know what my daughter was thinking. You know, she's like Meadows up to something by by by, by doing this kind of because that's how, that's how how screwed up the layers of um, of resentment and stuff are. Um, but so yeah, they, they, there was very little time spent in that in the black community, but it felt like it was brutally accurately portrayed in, in the relationship to the, you know to the featured community. And then with, with our movie, yeah, with you know the probably one of the biggest. Um, most intimidating things for me was trying to go in and represent that other that story and and its interaction with the, the gangster story for all kinds of reasons. Partly because you know there's a bunch of white guys making this movie. It's it, I'm a you know middle aged white director and David is uh, Italian American white guy and uh, so there's a risky presumption in going in to tell that story, especially since part of that story is the kind of radicalization of, of one of these characters. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do, well, and then add to that the fact that we started shooting, you know, before 
George Floyd and Black Lives Matter exploded, and we then finished and released after that. So that should put an exclamation point after all these concerns. Well, I, I, I was anxious about it. I knocked myself out trying to be accurate in things like the um, portrayal of the, of the looting and the rebellion. Uh, nothing you see in the, in the riot scenes wasn't, isn't grounded in photographic evidence that we found to try and be as truthful as we could be. Um, people in the neighborhood were coming out and sort of some had tears in their eyes because they were seeing the streets, you know, exactly the way they'd seen them when they were kids. Uh, wow. So I, it was, we worked really hard to get that right. And then uh, casting Leslie Odom was a huge boon because he just brings so much sort of weight and intelligence to that character that there's no way that character can be marginalized in the storytelling kind of, he really takes claims his space. Uh, and I think David, you know, uh, as in the show is just uh, very forthright and honest about the dynamics that, that, that he's portraying. So uh, I think he, um, I think he, he managed to write it in a way that, that feels accurate. And we, we showed it to some consultants afterwards and we certainly, I was waiting to see what Leslie Odom's reaction was and it was positive. So I feel like, uh, thank God we seem to have, you know, done a, done a good job on it. But uh, yeah, that was a big challenge. Yeah. And I mean, then, yeah. I'm, a, I'm another middle-aged white guy. So who cares? <laughs> like, I thought it was, I'm, I was a history major. I'm like obsessed with this era. And so was I. Yeah. 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 I, th I, I feel like this really did accurately reflect like what Newark was. You can read like Philip Roth books in the early sixties and they're describing Newark as like this sort of swanky place and going to short Hills and all these, and you go to Newark now and it's like, wait, what? It's kind of on the rise again. Which is great. It is on the rise again, and there's something really impressive. There's a bunch of impressive things. I mean, for one thing, um, um, uh, it was really interesting that during the recent upheavals, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and all that stuff, and when things were getting violent elsewhere, there was almost no violence in Newark. Um, and it's partly because they've been through it, and they've the the mayor uh, is the son of you know a major black activist from from our time, and there's in a way they they coped with a lot of this stuff better than us or ahead of us sort of so uh, hopefully that's something positive i don't know um but yeah. uh yeah take a lesson portland yeah <laughs> <laughs> um was there a moment on this set when you realized this was all going to work oh god no i never i'm not that i'm not built that way uh, uh <laughs> i mean there won't be a moment at, uh, I'm still hungry for comments like your first one when you said that it worked for you to hear that okay maybe this maybe this maybe this worked um but there were a lot of moments that felt confirming kind of um some of them were watching Michael Gandolfini step into the tone of his dad some were um some of the some of the scenes that aren't the sort of the the crowd uh dazzlers but like there's a scene between the younger Tony played by William um and, his, and Dickie sitting on the bed in Tony's bedroom. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And it's just uh, that combination of humor and family dynamics and, and, and darkness. Because it, in that scene, this kid has a kind of um, foreshadowing of his own potential death in a way that I think speaks very much to the, the way the series ended. Uh, and so the, all that stuff, you know, playing so quietly in that little scene was the kind of stuff that I really loved. And in terms of making it, there's probably there were a couple of moments like, um, the one set we built that tied directly to the show was Satrielli's, the pork store, and walking back into that set that I feel like I was in a time warp because I, you know, everything was the same but slightly better. Uh, that was fun. That was a that was a kind of okay. We are doing The Sopranos. <clears throat> yeah. There were so many things that were just subtle 
just there enough, like not too strong, not too soft, but like Tony talking to the guidance counselor, sort of setting up things with Melfi. And oh, I love that so much. And I loved his, the part with the mom where she reads him the story and he doesn't know what an ingot is and she explains it to him. And you just see like, there was heart there. There was a real relationship there at one point. And yeah, that, that's the key. That's the key to the movie in a way, because uh, we know what Livia was like later. We know her effect on Tony, um, but you, there was a moment there where it could have gone differently. And Dickie is part of that. You know, uh, if Dickie could have turned her, he was, he was about to help. You know, there was the whole subplot at the very end of the movie when, you know, that she might have gotten the kind of help that she could have needed that, that, that she needed that might have helped her be a, that kind of mother. And Vera does an amazing performance where you see that tugging at her. You see the, you know, the sadness for what she knows is sort of she hasn't been doing. And then the scene with the hamburger where she's trying to make it all right. And that's just, you know, in typical David Chase fashion, <sighs> just collapses. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on the on the Jarecki scene, the counselor scene, because I, again, in terms of tying into the show, I felt like there were various places where we were back in Melfi's office, and that was one. But one of my favorite ones is also Dickie talking to Ray Liotta's character in prison, who becomes like a counselor to him, sort of. Um, uh, and the way we cast Ray was something I was very excited about because, you know, he's a he's a king in the in the, in the American gangster lore, um, but we cast him in a way that is slightly odd. You know, um, if people see the movie, they'll see what I'm talking about. But, um, uh, and then the fact that he takes on that sort of counselor role and becomes a kind of Melfi for our main character was really a nice circularity. That's it. A little different from our normal interviews. More of a conversation, I guess. A conversation with someone uh, who knows everything about the subject being discussed. Alan Taylor, director of The Many Saints of Newark, the movie I adore. And, of course, you've already seen it, too, because we made that little agreement at the top of the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back here very soon uh, with lots of extremely good interviews I can't tell you about quite yet. And uh, check us out anytime at moviemaker.com. I really appreciate you listening this far. Thank you, and see you soon.